Listener Production. Welcome back to State Crime Command. This is episode two of the case of William Allen Roach. In episode one, we learnt of his sudden disappearance on New Year's Eve 1993. His family believes someone has the answer and police are offering a million dollar reward for information leading to an arrest. been questioning Bill's mental state in the eight weeks before his disappearance. His decline was as swift as it was unexpected. It began in mid-November. Graham Hunter, Bill and his girlfriend went to the Thora Valley for a festival. Uh, we went down to the Homelands Festival at, at Thora. Bill and I went down there together with a group. Um, that was a good time. The Thora Valley, 140 kilometres east of Armidale, is renowned as a place where magic mushrooms grow. At the Peace and Healing Festival, attendees would go looking for gold tops and blue moonies. If they couldn't find them, many had a backup supply of acid. From all accounts, Bill Roach ended up taking both drugs that night. This promised to be a psychedelic adventure for Bill as he mingled at this gathering of countercultures. A coven of witches invited him to be initiated as a wizard. During the ceremony, Bill was asked to cross a stream by a course of stones and to avoid stepping in the water. For a joke, Bill leapt off the stones into the water. His mother, Yvonne. Apparently one of these so-called witches decided they'd put a curse on him and he apparently laughed and said, there's no such thing, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they then put a death wish on him. And about half past eight that night, he rings me from Bellington to get him out of there. And unfortunately, I'd just got home from having dinner out with my sister and of course, I wasn't able to drive there. So I suggested he see the police station as far as getting him some accommodation and I'd be up in the morning. But at any rate, he rang another girlfriend down here and she was a counsellor and she counselled him and then dropped him off at my place about 9.30. But he was freaked out. He, I've never seen anyone as white and pale because he'd been cursed. The death wish was on him. Apparently, Bill had run from the festival site in a blind panic, leaving behind. He was more concerned about this girlfriend because he couldn't find her and she had to get back to Armadale. But about midnight, I think we contacted her and she was home in Armadale. So he settled down a little bit after that. But, um, you know, he was just, his mind had just gone. I've never seen anything like it. And the next morning he wanted to go back to Armadale, so he had breakfast and that and caught the bus home back to Armadale. Graham Hunter lost track of Bill at the festival, but later heard what happened. That's where he started having some mental health issues. He was actually a very intelligent guy, um, but the problems of those drugs he took down there really did something to him. Well, he thought he could hear people's thoughts. I'm a can of uh, 
was born here in Armidale. My great-grandfather came here at the turn of last century, so we were locals. Mick Kahn met Bill at the bistro of the University of New England. I believe there was one pool table in the whole of Armidale and it was at the uni bistro. That was one place that Bill did spend a lot of time. Obviously, he was at uni and obviously Bill was an incredibly good pool player. Bill was incredibly charismatic, smart, funny. He was a really nice player. That had all changed after Thora. Mick Khan saw it firsthand when Bill came to a gathering at his house in mid-December 1993. When he came back, Bill was obviously in an altered state of mind, looking for answers and looking for friends in this state. Obviously the night where Bill jumped out the window at my place, that's a perfect example. Bill thought he was cursed uh, by a coven of witches and that had caused him to jump out the window. Other people say he heard voices in his head, but that's my recollection. And he jumped out a window that was 10 foot from the ground with, a, with some sharp rocks underneath it, and he dove out head first. So I went around to see if he was okay and actually just lost my patience with Bill because I just was worried about his welfare and I couldn't have this sort of behaviour going on. And I asked Bill to leave, and you know it wears heavy on my heart that that was the last time me and Bill ever spoke. I seen Bill once after that. I believe it was between Christmas and New Year. He was walking up Marsh Street. I was in the Royal Hotel. I called out the door of the Royal Hotel to Bill. It was about lunchtime. And he turned around, looked over his shoulder at me, and then put his head down and walked up the road. And uh, that was the last time I seen Bill. The last time Bill saw his beloved mother Yvonne was at 4.30pm on Christmas Day 1993. Yvonne and Bill's sister Kim had Christmas lunch with Bill. He seemed paranoid, very tense and spaced out to Kim and Yvonne. Well, it was quite a funny one, really. He sort of didn't say much and then every now and again he'd ask me, was I talking to him? Oh, I think he had something going on in his head, but we seemed to have a nice day and... Uh, exchange gifts and cards. But the funny thing about that was that he made his own Christmas cards out of A4 paper folded in half and then he did a drawing like a sixth-class child and on mine I think he had the big old oak tree and a witch's eye and witchcraft symbols on it. And I'm not sure, I think the police still have that card. I can't remember the, the verse he had in it that he made himself. But I did think peculiar. He said to Kim, would you please look after Mum? And that sounded very funny on hers. We had Christmas lunch and then he asked me to take him about 20 k's on the Grafton Road and I dropped him and another one of his drug fellows off there and that's the last I saw of him. I gave him a hug and just felt ribs sticking out. And uh, he was to call me on Boxing Day. We were going to have lunch because I was off to Sydney on the 27th. So I sat waiting for a phone call, which never happened. The timeline of Bill's last known movements has gaps that Mark Simmons is working to fill. Graham Hunter says Bill was bouncing between Springvale Farm and Armidale in this period. He had a conversation with him about seeking help for the voices in his head. He was imagining things in his head like hearing people and stuff after that so but he reckoned I was good because I didn't get in his head also I was interested in the pool and girls and stuff but 
He also said he wanted to see Aboriginal elders because he thought they could help with the witches issue. And he was talking about going down to Kempsey or somewhere and possibly walking or hitchhiking or something. But I don't think he ever did that. I thought his bigger plan was to get down to check out his birth month. And that's why I didn't want to come to the festival, because he had somebody lined up to give him a lift down there. Or some of the way there, yeah. Graham Hunter went away to a festival after Christmas, leaving his flat in town unattended. He asked Bill to come along to the festival, but Bill declined. Bill had a key so he could come and go. It was Kim's birthday on the 27th of December. Bill was supposed to meet Kim and Mother Yvonne for lunch at the New England Hotel in Armidale, but he didn't show and didn't even call. On the 29th of December, Bill came to the New England Hotel where Kim was working. He apologised for standing her up on her birthday. He kissed Kim and gave her a $50 note. He said to her, Promise me you'll look after Mum, and then he left the hotel. That was the last she saw of her brother. On the 30th of December, it appears that Bill was at Springvale Farm and then travelled to another favourite waterhole called the Blue Hole in the evening. Just how he got there is in dispute. It's 34 kilometres from the farm and Bill had no vehicle. Detective Mark Simmons. So, Mark, we're now here at the Blue Hole. What's the significance of this location to the story? Uh, so the significance of this is that um, in the days leading up to Bill's disappearance there was um, a story that he had come out here and I believe it was his uncle and aunt that uh, said he recounted to them the following day that he'd been out at the Blue Hole all night and watching the moon. I believe they worked out it was the night before New Year's Eve that he was out here. Bill showed up at Uncle Jimmy and Aunt Muriel's place in Armidale the next day, the 31st of December. He said he walked the 20 kilometres from the Blue Hole into town. His Uncle Jimmy dropped him off in Kirkwood Street. Bill was later seen about three kilometres away at Barney Street by two family friends, the Howarths, who were standing outside their house. They later confirmed what he was wearing and carrying. This sighting was just a few doors up from Graham Hunter's flat, but Bill's pool-playing buddy was away. And that was the last confirmed sighting of Bill Roach. But when Graham Hunter returned home, he found some crystals that Bill always carried with him. He expected Bill would be back for them. It wasn't until five days later, January 5, that Bill was missed. His mother Yvonne's first thought, given Bill's disordered thinking, was that he'd wandered off into the bush. Most people shared that view, including local police. Kim and I decided we'd had enough, so we went out to the property and kangaroos, rats, possums, everything had been in there. There was rent owing. We had a look at this ghastly futon and it had a witch's circle around it, you know, with eggshells, feathers and different things. And then a broken down tripod made mainly of three fence posts. And underneath that were three books, Zen Buddhism, Witches' Curses, and um, Byron Poetry. And I, I said to Kim, we've got to get out of here, so we decided we'd pack everything up, and we found his wallet, his MasterCard, and his shoes, so he had no shoes on. All he had on was what his clothes he was wearing. The discoveries of Bill's clothes and shoes were ominous. 
This seemed to confirm that Bill had made it back to Springvale Farm after being last seen in Armadale on the afternoon of December 31st. And the other thing that was missing was a book that I'd sort of noticed he had and every time I'd seen him he always had this book tucked down his belt and that's what he used to write everything in his dreams and that's the only thing we couldn't find because we thought that might have a key to it. Another larger notebook was found amongst Bill's possessions. It's from an earlier period in 1993, but it gives an idea of what Bill recorded. Amongst the pages of florid love poetry and mystic ramblings about the occult, Bill had made quite precise notes of his movements. Byron Bay, sitting in Jamie's combi, walking Seasome Street, and the waves breaking. This is the life. There are hand-drawn maps showing where Bill was staying on his jaunts. Such information from December 1993 would be invaluable and a vital piece of evidence if Bill did meet foul play or simply wandered off. But I still had in my mind suicide or just misadventure from the heat. Bill's sister Kim has always believed someone else had a hand in Bill's fate. In my heart of hearts, I believe there's something very suspicious in regards to the way when he first went missing and I'd go out to Springvale. A couple of them were very sheepish, very, they just get out of my way, quick, smart. There's something not quite right there. In the early months of 1994, there was still a belief that Bill Roach would saunter back into Armadale at any time. He'd wandered off before and returned. In the months and years after Bill's disappearance, there were confusing incidents and information, including a mysterious Mother's Day call. Kim Roach. On Mother's Day in 1994, Yvonne, our mother, she got a phone call around mid-morning and no-one actually spoke on the phone on the other line. It was just Mum saying hello anyone there and then there was a pause before the person hung up. And she reported that call to the police and there was some follow-up? Yes, I believe there was at the time, yes. And what about her phone number after that? Yvonne never changed her phone number in the hope that one day Bill would phone. So she moved probably three times and never once changed her phone number. I believe that if it was Bill on the phone, he would have spoke. I believe that perhaps someone was trying to portray that Bill was still alive out there. This phone call became common knowledge amongst Bill's circle, adding to the mystique of his story. There was talk that perhaps Bill had abandoned his family. What was your attitude when you heard these stories, I guess, coming back around that Bill was potentially alive? Well, I'd always state if Bill was alive, the number one person he'd always come to see would be Mum. Bottom line, mum. They had a bond that was really, it was a beautiful bond. A bond that I was sometimes thought, gee whiz, he's always the favourite. Obviously not, but it was a really special bond that they had. And I know in my heart of hearts, if he was, if he was alive, he'd just make, he'd make an effort to see mum. The police file suggests this call was actually in 1997. Whenever it happened, such a call would be heartbreaking for a mother longing for her son. Was this Bill reaching out or a cruel hoax to make Yvonne think Bill was still alive? And I just think there's someone, if not a group of people out there that know, that should have come forward before Mum passed and they should have let her pass in peace just so she could have closure, so we could all have closure. 
or it could have simply been a wrong number. Bill's housemates on Springvale Farm all seem to believe Bill took his own life or somehow created a new one, as unlikely as that seemed. His best mate, Simon Campbell Hardwick, shared the cottage on Springvale Farm. An actor is reading from a statement he gave in 2010. Bill did some crazy, almost suicidal things in the weeks leading up to his disappearance. Mick Khan had a party at Burrowang, which Bill came to. In the middle of the party, out of the blue, Bill threw himself through the kitchen window. It was open and just avoided hitting a barbed wire fence on his way down. He'd go for long walks. This one time we thought Bill was in town and we heard the scream, like a wailing, screaming sound coming from the main house. We went over and it was just Bill sitting in the middle of his room screaming. We tried to talk to him, but we really couldn't break through. This was probably only a week or two before he went missing. We thought about every possibility about what might have happened. We thought that he might have gone out bush and done himself in. I knew Bill for quite a few years and I've never seen Bill like that. If he had killed himself, I wouldn't have been surprised. He was just that depressed. We also thought that he might have just wandered off and gone hitchhiking or travelling somewhere. Bill never had any enemies. He got on with everyone. In mid-1994, there was a report that Bill had been seen in the town of Barraville, 200 kilometres east of Armadale. He was said to be living in an Indigenous community. This seemed to tally with earlier facts. Bill had spoken of trekking overland to Barraville to seek advice from Indigenous healers about lifting what he believed was a witch's curse. This would have involved following an ancient trackway to the sea, crossing rugged range country with treacherous ravines and hidden dangers. This 200-kilometre journey would have been some feat, especially when you consider that Bill had left his walking boots behind and most of the clothing he regularly wore. The police in Barraville followed up the leads uh, down that way in relation to Bill being sighted and spoke with many long-term residents and respected members of the Aboriginal community and elders, showed photos and nobody recognised or knew uh, of Bill Roach at all. In June 1994, a witness told police he'd seen Bill outside the Armadale Post Office in March or April of that year. The witness said he'd known Bill for 10 years and they talked for half an hour. Bill was in good spirits and said he'd been travelling up and down the coast for some time. The witness said he saw a poster seeking information on Bill's whereabouts and then made the report. Yeah, I have uh, I've spoken to the person that provided that information and, and he was reasonably confident that he had seen Bill. Given the passage of time, perhaps he was confused, although he did approach the police not that long after the sighting but we were never able to confirm from any other source of any other sighting of Bill. So it reminds a little bit of a mystery, that one. One of Bill's female friends was making her own inquiries in January 1994. I'll call her Brooke for legal reasons. Brooke was in a relationship with a man I'll call Grant. At this time, Brooke was seven months pregnant with Grant's child. Uh, tells a story about going out to the waterhole located at the property Springvale, probably in January 94. She describes going out there with her husband and her mother uh, to go to the waterhole just to have a look and spend some time there. Brooke said she encountered one of Bill's friends, whom she also knew well. She states that uh, when she told him that she wanted to go to the waterhole, he has uh, insisted that he come with them. He's put his boots on, uh, has gone with them, but then gone in front of them and gone ahead before they got to the waterhole uh, and stopped the family from going any further until he'd had a look in the waterhole. 
She states that then he said it was okay for them to go and have a look, which they did. He sat down. Uh, I believe she said that he had a cut on his leg, which he told her that he did on the rocks at the waterhole around two weeks prior to that and that it wouldn't heal the cut. When she asked how he did that, she states that he said he fell over on a rock. She said to him that you were carrying something. He looked at her and said nothing for a little while and then said it was Bill. And that was his disclosure to her that uh, he'd been carrying Bill and her impression was that he'd carried him and dropped him in the waterhole to dispose of his body. She describes him as um, distraught while he was telling this story and said that he looked like he was crying. He told her then that uh, he didn't mean to do it. He got angry and stabbed Bill and then that everything after that was a bit of a blur. He, uh, he went on further to say that he'd grabbed a knife in the kitchen and describes that to... Brooke also claimed a second man was out at the waterhole. He'd appeared from the scrub and seemed to be hiding something in his hand behind a tree. This man was Martin Rummery, who's since died. Rummery was also alleged to have helped dispose of Bill's body on the Baguna property. Brooke didn't contact police in January 1994 at the time of this encounter. She held the information back until 2003 didn't do anything with the information at the time. She was quite upset by it. She was also pregnant with her first child and quite frightened about what she'd been told. She made the decision then to try and forget what she'd been told. The challenge for police is to corroborate Brooke's evidence and to understand why she took so long to come forward. Her partner Grant was there on the day when this alleged confession was made. She's about 200 metres away. And there was another person there. It seemed like an odd scene, you know, the body language was pretty tense and it was all a bit off. I got there realising that we just had to go. There was no point hanging around, but it was quite a heavy sort of feeling around that little group. I kind of said, what the f*** are we going or whatever? And she just wouldn't speak. She was just like a stone. But I've just eyeballed the whole time and I've just, we're going, you know, I'll see you around sort of thing. Um, it, it seemed like... The two of them were standing over to a degree. Or it was just a heavy situation. But at the time, it just seemed really weird and heavy and there were two guys and we were out in the middle of nowhere and I just wanted to get her away. And just wouldn't tell you why. Would she tell you anything why she wouldn't tell you or was it just silence? No, look, my memory is as we're walking back, once we got far enough away to be out of earshot, I started asking her, what was that all about? What's going on? What's wrong? You know, why are you upset? What were you talking about? about and um, she literally refused to say anything and at some point finally spoke and she just snapped and just said just shut up and leave me alone I don't want to talk about it you know she lost her temper with us and we did we just left her alone um, I probably tried that night or in the following days to ask her but I think I was met with the same instant response of leave me alone in the end it was just kind of forgotten about I'd say that was out of character for she was usually pretty open about how she was feeling and how she thought other people were interacting with her. It was raised again after that day, or at least not in that period? Not to my knowledge, no. The person who allegedly confessed to Brooke at the waterhole has declined to be interviewed by police on legal advice. He has given evidence, though, at a coroner's inquest and has denied making any such statements. And that's as far as that lead has gone.
It's one of several lines of inquiry that investigators are following up. Mark Simmons has been seeking out Bill's old friends who are scattered across the country. Graham Hunter told him about Janet, who'd been a girlfriend in 1993. Bill's sister Kim found some correspondence from Janet amongst Bill's things, read here by an actor. Dear Bill, while you're certainly hard to get a hold of, Bill, it's like you're covered in illusion dust. It was dated February 7, 1993, 10 months before Bill's disappearance. It told of Bill's trips from Armidale down to Sydney to visit Janet and his unreliability. I can only guess that you didn't end up heading for Victoria and therefore didn't arrive in Sydney. My guess is you're in Armidale. Mark Simmons located Janet Interstate and she was happy to talk about her relationship with Bill. Janet was very good to talk to, had some clear memories and some diaries that she'd written from back at that time. She was able to tell us a number of things that have been quite helpful to the investigation. Bill was visiting her reasonably regularly in Sydney and on one of those occasions when he came to visit uh, he turned up with two large backpacks and when she pressed him as to what was in those backpacks he eventually showed her and they were full of cannabis. When she pushed him as to why he had those he he told her he was delivering them to Sydney for a friend and it was a one-off thing um, which she believed and she believed that because in their relationship they weren't uh, into using drugs. She did learn later on, uh, she went to Armidale and lived for a time and and had some more to do with Bill then and then came to realise that perhaps he he was tied up with some stuff that was a little bit untoward and she gradually sort of moved away from Bill. Janet's information has given the investigation a new direction, that Bill's disappearance was perhaps related to a drug deal gone bad. He'd once been arrested for selling a small amount of cannabis in the Armidale Mall. It was only a small amount and information prior to us doing this reinvestigation was that he was a bit of a casual user of drugs and maybe some more serious drugs when he was in Sydney uh, and then obviously mushrooms and that sort of stuff but there was no indication uh, of any sort of large-scale dealing or anything like that. And not only from Janet, but now we have other sources that have told us that he may have been mixed up with that sort of stuff. There's a possibility that he might have naively got involved with some people that were quite heavily into that that scene, and that could have led to problems. Bill's friends can shed no light on this. There's no evidence of a drug finance lifestyle, and in 1993, he was always broke and relied completely on his dole each fortnight. That's why Bill's sister Kim Roach was a little surprised when he gave her a $50 note for her birthday, days before he disappeared. This wasn't something Bill did. He simply didn't have the cash. Maybe there was some extra income that Bill was receiving. And then there were his parting words to her. Promise me that you'll look after Mum. He wrote the same thing on Kim's Christmas card. Was that a cryptic message that he might not be around much longer? These clues have haunted the family for decades. There was always an added urgency for Simmons on this job. Bill's mum Yvonne was elderly and had been gravely ill with cancer for some time. He wanted to get answers for her and time was running out. I I heard a story many years ago that Bill's mum uh, every year makes a cake and lights a candle uh, for Bill on his birthday and I think that picture in itself should be good motivation for, for somebody to come forward. Sadly, Yvonne has made her last birthday cake for Bill. Yvonne went into palliative care in June 2020 and on June 27th, she passed away. Yeah, it's been tough and um, sad, but at least she's at peace. This is the grim reality of long-term missing persons cases. Many loved ones go to their graves without an answer. Yvonne had been so patient for so long. 
She never gave up hope and she turned her grief into love and concern for others who'd suffered loss as she had. Yeah, through that she she grew and then she also took on her role to educate people about missing people from on the North Coast. So that was her role that she took quite seriously and just educate the everyday public. And then on Missing Persons Week, which she worked with the committee and also the Missing Persons Unit to um, make it a national Missing Persons Week way back when. And then she would hold you know, service, but she wasn't biased. She'd hold a service at, you know, the Bathurst Church, the Catholic Church the following year, the community centre the following year. So just getting it out there and hold a little service so people on the North Coast could come and, and meet other people that have family and friends that have gone missing. So great legacy. She was not just a fighter for her own belief, but a fighter for other families and their, their beliefs as well. Now that Yvonne's gone, it's up to Kim to keep Bill's memory alive in the hope that someone will finally come forward with the missing piece of information that will bring her brother home. Until you have a body or a story, you still believe that they're out there. So, um, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard on their birthday and on your mum's Mother's Day and Christmas Day and all those beautiful days that, you know, you just think, What's happened? But it's hard. Well, that's just the way it is, isn't it? You don't stop. And Mum would want an answer and got to try and find an answer. And Most people can have a funeral or something like that, but we've got nothing. We can't do that. And we just want to be like everybody else, have a, be able to have closure. And surely that's not too much to ask. I've always, yeah, I've always had forgiveness. I'm not a, I'm not the sort of person to hold a grudge. I would just, I'd ask, you know, your your time's getting on too, and you just feel you can get on with life if you've lifted your conscience. So be honest with yourself, and then be honest with others. Just come out with something. If you know anything, come out with that. If anyone has fresh information on the fate of Bill Roach, I urge you to make contact with Crime Stoppers on 1800 000 or to call your local police. There's now $1 million on offer for information leading to an arrest in Bill's case if he met foul play. Even the smallest piece of information would be so valuable. You never stop looking in the crowds, even to this day. Like, it doesn't matter what age you become, you know, where you are in the world, you still look in, in that crowd just to see that face. State Crime Command is produced in collaboration with the New South Wales Police Force and Real Crime Australia. Written and produced by Adam Shan. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Original music and mixing by Matt Nikolic. The associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nolly Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. Listener.